what might it be little girls every negro who refuses to go down to try to register and vote participated in that act what murdered these four girls the apathy and the complacency of many negro who will sit down on their stools of do nothing and not engage in creative protest to get rid of this evil system what murdered these four young girls was the negro business and professional individual who's more concerned about his job than he's concerned about freedom and justice welcome back to the program i'm pleased to have in studio former u.s senator doug jones mr jones welcome to the program thank you michelle i appreciated you being here so glad to have you. I played that clip because two of the individuals who were KKK members that were involved in the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Alabama, Thomas Goodwin Blanton Jr. and Bobby Frank Cherry, you were involved in prosecuting those individuals some three decades later and bringing them to justice. And let me just thank you wholeheartedly for you know, reinvigorate, reinvigorating that cold case. And I know the South, the South doesn't like to dig up old bones and they don't like to leave history in the past. But thank you so much for letting folks know that justice is a preservative, right? And there is no statute of limitations on on murder. So we appreciate you for that. Thank sir. you very, very much. It was a labor of love. I'll tell you, it was an honor to be a part of it. And Dr. King's powerful words that he spoke that you just played at the funeral for those girls is as powerful today as it was in 1963. You were elected to fill a seat vacated by Jefferson Beauregard Sessions. And I always say his whole name because I want to remind folks that he's named after not one but two Confederate generals. That's right. So he was appointed to the uh, he was attorney general for Donald Trump, Donald Trump's first of many attorney generals, which caused a special election to the U.S. Senate in Alabama, and you were able to maybe foreshadow the midterm election victories of Democrats during that 2018 campaign cycle. You had a, it was a tough road, but can we also just say that your opponent was less than a savory character? Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, everything lined up just right, and, and I would be less than candid if I didn't say I had a flawed opponent. But it still was one of those situations coming after the election of Donald Trump in 2016. Uh, the election of a Democrat in Alabama that had a different voice, I think, gave hope for those potential uh, 2018 and, and really set the stage for the 2018 midterms. Could it be some kind of foreshadowing that what we always consider and what Democrats quite honestly ignore, we ignore the deep red South with a particular type of outreach and strategy. Can places that are deep red maybe start shifting purple, if not blue? with maybe Georgia being an example. No, I think there's no question about that, Sean. I'm glad you mentioned that because that's exactly the kind of thing that we're trying to focus on in the South. And you're absolutely right. Democrats have ignored the Deep South for a long time. But we're shifting. The demographics are shifting uh, in Alabama and in South Carolina and Tennessee and different places. Right now, folks are kind of entrenched, and it's very tribal. But as the demographics shift and people age out and young people come up to get engaged, 
there is going to be some changes. It is not something that we can flip a switch overnight, but it's something that we need to be working on and we need to be playing long ball. But I'm going to tell you, the challenge that we've got in the South, more than any place in the country, is getting young people engaged. They are so accustomed to not having an influence for their candidates to be losing. And we've got to get back to the idea that, Every vote matters. Every vote counts. And you do have influence, even if you do vote for a losing candidate. And if we can get young people out to vote, uh, and I'm telling you, there's a big difference. I'll give you an example, if you don't mind. In my race in 2020 that I lost, uh, registered voters in Alabama, age 65 and over, you know, they're pretty, they're not very diverse, okay, to say the least. They're pretty conservative. I didn't get a ton of those votes. Well, 71% of them turned out to vote. Okay, ages 18 to 29, which I get a lot more of the percentage of those voters, a lot more diverse, only 42 percent turned out. Twenty nine point swing. We've got to get folks engaged and understanding basic civics that their votes count. And when that happens, we can make a change not only in the South, we can change, make a change in the Midwest. And when we do that, we make a change in this country. A couple of things should be noted. First and foremost, my father was born in Troy, Alabama. So, of course, my conversation and interview with you does have a, a personal touch to it. But also, three in ten voters in the state of Alabama are African-American. The numbers that you put up, the performance with African-American voters in Alabama, simply staggering. So staggering, in fact, that we use some of this information to help encourage African-American voters in the pivotal battleground state of Wisconsin. You got 96 percent of the African-American vote. Let me ask you this. How, how did you do that? Because we get some black candidates that can't get 96% of the, with 98% of the black woman vote going to you. Well, I tell you what, uh, I think African-American women really stepped up in that race in 2017. They organized. They got people to the polls. They they vote voted like their life depended on it because to some extent they thought it did, and I believe it did. And I, and I was really proud of that vote. You know, t- t- we have probably in Alabama, in a n- normal election, the, the African-American vote is about what it is in the state. It's about really 25%. In my race in 2017, it was almost 30% of the total vote, and that made the difference in my election. And that's why I try to tell people, you know, your vote does matter. Your vote counts. It is, it's damn sure not going to count if you don't get out there and vote. Don't make it a fait accompli. Get out there and vote. And it's, I want to make sure everybody understands that. And it's not a monolithic vote. There were, in 2020, there were a number of folks that voted a Republican for whatever reason. But regardless, you got to get out there and vote. you got to participate in this electoral process. We are speaking with former U.S. Senator and Attorney Doug Jones. There's a lot at stake. There was a lot at stake in your election in, in 2017, 2018. There's a lot more at stake. I think that the president had not yet been impeached once when you, when you got elected. We know that that changed. And, of course, everything that happened on January 6th. A former Senator, how do we tell people? What the writing is on the wall here, like this is put up or shut up time. We've seen the overturning of Roe. Folks need to know, and I want you to help me reinforce this point. It can get so much worse. So what do we what oh, do we tell folks? Look, I think I think that that is a huge message. I mean, people right now are discouraged. 
They don't like the direction in the country that, that the country is going. But the fact is, they don't like the direction the country is going because they see a Supreme Court, an activist Supreme Court, rolling back the rights that Americans have enjoyed for decades, uh, for generations. They see a court that will, refuses to address gun violence. They see a court that refuses to address and make it more difficult to uh, address climate change. They see a, a, a Republican Party, quite frankly, a, a party that is being held hostage by an extreme MAGA faction of the party that wants to subvert elections, that wants to suppress votes. They need to be very, you know, look, I hope people are following the January 6th committee because they are making a compelling case about how fragile our democracy is and how we came so close to losing it. And we had some good folks who stood up and, and was the backstop at that, uh, at that time. I worry that in 2024, we're not going to have those folks. Look what happened here in Wisconsin just last week. Your, your Supreme Court decides a process of drop boxes and being able to deliver ballot, uh, absentee ballots that had never, ever been a problem before is now all of a sudden a problem. And they're making it more difficult for folks to vote. That, that is a, as a danger. The Supreme Court has just taken up a case, uh, a North Carolina redistricting case, that could very well give state legislatures the sole and ultimate authority to decide elections. I'm not exaggerating that. The case is whether or not a Supreme Court, a state Supreme Court, has the sole and exclusive right without any judicial challenge, without any checks and balances. That, my friends, is a, cha- is a, is a threat to democracy everywhere. I remember the, the Clinton years because my first opportunity to vote in an election was for Bill Clinton when he was running in 1996. And I personally have seen how politics have changed really over the last 30 years, where there was a place for moderate Democrats, where they could work with, you know, more compassionate, I guess if you want to call them that, compassionate conservatives. There was compromise on our politics. So in the last 30 years, I've seen that completely, completely evaporate. So because there's very little compromise, you almost have to have one party ruling all of government to get anything done. Even that's a crapshoot sometimes. How do we tell the young person that can't afford the the cost of living? You know, the amount of money that they make is not enough to afford a one-bedroom apartment in, in most of the country. They're drowning in student loan debt. And even with the Affordable Care Act, sometimes health insurance is still unaffordable and obtainable because we need those young people to say, hey, wait a minute. The system can work for you as well. But when we look at the issues that are in front of them, it's very, very difficult to get some of those monumental political tasks, tasks accomplished. So what do we tell the 18 and 19 and 21, 22 year old drowning in student debt that doesn't have a lot of faith in the system? Well, it's a it's a it's a serious problem. That's why we're seeing, I think, a drop off in younger people voting. But I think you have to go back to basic civics and you've got to go back to say, look, there can never be change unless you make that change. You know, if people had not stood up to, for change, had not forced that change, we wouldn't have had the, 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 the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. If young people like John Lewis had not marched across that Edmund Pettus Bridge at, at his own peril, getting beaten by billy clubs of Alabama state troopers, we would have never seen the change, or we, it would have not come but for decades, potentially later, you've got to get engaged. You've got to stay involved. You've got to find those issues and you've got to hold people accountable. But voting is a huge part of that. But I'll tell you, Sharon, 
after voting, you've got to continue to stay engaged. You've got to continue to talk to people. You've got to continue to go where they are. People need to do understand you're never going to make the change overnight. That's not the way democracy works. People have to work with folks and go where they are and make progress as they can. We saw that in the gun legislation lately. It's not all that I think. We, I, I know it's not all that I would like. It's not all that I have proposed. But it's historic. It's significant. The president is signing it today. We need to do that on, on law enforcement reform. We need to do that on student debt. We need to work where people are and make those changes necessary to march forward. Speaking with former U.S. Senator from Alabama, Doug Jones, we're going to take a break. When we come back, you are at an event tomorrow morning at Sam's Place. So I want to talk about that. But also, speaking of pivotal moments in American history, you were a member of the U.S. Senate when Donald Trump essentially appointed three justices to the U.S. Supreme Court. So I want to talk about that. And did you believe them when they said they thought that Roe was settled law, which they all did in about face? So when take a break, come back, continue our conversation with former U.S. Senator Doug Jones from Alabama. You're listening to The Truth with Sherwin Hughes on the new 1017 FM. Don't go anywhere. We'll both be right back. This is The Truth with Sherwin Hughes on 1017 The Truth, The Truth app, and 1017thetruth.com. Welcome back. Former U.S. Senator from Alabama, Doug Jones, is in studio. We were talking about the, the time in which he was in the U.S. Senate, serving the duration of the term left by Jefferson Beauregard Sessions, who was named after not one but two Confederate generals, So Neil Gorsuch filled the vacancy left on the U.S. Supreme Court that conventional wisdom told us would have gone to Merrick Garland. But, of course, Mitch McConnell said no hearing. We're going to wait and see what happens with this next presidential election, even though there was some precedent where in a uh, last term of a president, a U.S. Supreme Court justice had been appointed. But, of course, all sorts of precedents change. You were there for the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh, who I will assume you voted against both of those, correct? Correct. That's absolutely correct. Mitch McConnell probably prioritized putting those justices on the bench and other federal positions, other federal benches and district courts, more so than even being president. Didn't he share something similar, uh, information like that with you? There's no question. I mean, I've heard Senator McConnell say uh, on numerous occasions that the proudest day that he's ever had in the Senate was blocking Merrick Garland from even getting a hearing. Remember, Justice Scalia died like in February. Right. More than uh, adequate time, more than uh, time necessary time to get a full uh, vetting and investigation and, and hearing uh, for someone who was eminently qualified to be on the United States Supreme Court. You know, we hear, <laughs> it's funny, we hear a lot of voices now, they're so... Uh, wrapped up because of the court and and what we see happening. They want to expand the court. And, and, you know, there's only one person that I know of in the history of the United States who has single-handedly altered the numerical makeup of the Supreme Court, and that's Mitch McConnell, because he allowed eight people instead of nine to stay on that court for over a year. He just didn't care. And then you flip that coin, just as President Trump was facing re-election in September, October of 2020, and Justice Ginsburg passes away, and what does Mitch McConnell do? Instead of saying, 
we should wait and let the people decide what the, uh, the, the presidential election. He decides, no, 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 we're going to go ahead and push this through. And in less than 30 days, we had a new Supreme Court justice. And even Lindsey Graham said it, it, it almost doesn't matter. It's almost like these Republicans nowadays can't even be held to their own word, because I believe that Lindsey Graham said something to the effect that, you know, we should wait or no, sure. not on his watch that we're going to appoint somebody so quickly. But then all of a sudden, the the hypnosis of Trumpism, which I've seen and you've both seen take over the country, even impacted somebody like Lindsey Graham. Maybe we shouldn't be so shocked. No, no, you shouldn't be. And it's it's not just and I think this is way beyond the hypnosis of Trump. This is the hypnosis of political power clinging to political power at all cost. And that's exactly what has happened. Uh, It's what we see playing out with this January 6th committee, how that clinging to power uh, went from filing lawsuits to these bizarre theories that were of fraud that were had no basis and some were illegal uh, to violence. And uh, that's the danger that I think we we see uh, to democracy right now. I think it should be noted that Merrick Garland is no ultra leftist liberal activist <laughs> because Republicans had voted for him to put him on the D.C. circuit. And so Barack Obama making a, a moderate choice, one in which Republican votes had already been garnered. It was amazing how politics even overtook the common sense of the Republicans that voted to put Merrick Garland on the D.C. circuit. Yeah, no. Remember, at that time. The Supreme Court nomination still required 60 votes. The filibuster had not been busted. Senator Reed from Nevada, the Democratic leader, had but kind of pushed through where district court and circuit court of appeals justices, you wouldn't require that 60 vote threshold in the filibuster. But it was still there for the Supreme Court. So what President Obama did, he did appoint someone who was respected on both sides of the aisle, who was not seen as an activist judge. Uh, someone who followed the rule of law and felt like he could get 60 votes. And I believe if he'd have gotten a hearing, he would have gotten 60 votes. But the fact is, McConnell decided we're not even going to give him not just a vote. Hell, he didn't give him a hearing. I mean, it was just ripping the Constitution to shreds, in my opinion. And Mitch McConnell barely paid a political price for that. I mean, he was demoted to minority leader, which we hope that he... He remains as Mr. Jones, let me ask you about the filibuster. It is preventing a lot of common sense legislation from getting to President Biden's desk. And I believe that President Biden's approval rating is failing and falling because of the filibuster that's still in place. But the Democrats have a slippery slope. We get rid of the filibuster and then we lose the U.S. Senate in this year then it's gone forever, right? Then the Republican wish list can ultimately come true, right? Well, it can come true if they have a Democratic president. I mean, a, a Republican president. As long as a Democratic president is there, that's a, the backstop because it takes 66, 67 votes to overcome a, a presidential veto. And I, I do think, though, that it is somewhat of a slippery slope. Uh, with completely eliminating the filibuster. One of the things, though, that I think we need to get back to, a lot of folks don't realize that the Senate just doesn't operate the way the Senate was designed to operate. There is no great debates anymore. There is no opportunity to amend legislation. Everything is put in this must-have legislation, whether it's a national defense authorization or appropriations, and you don't, you rarely see bills come to the floor on their own in this debate. Part of that is because so much time is taken up with nominations. But if we were to get back to a situation where you've got to hold the floor and talk about and and, and talk 
a talking filibuster where you literally have to hold the floor. In the past, that has worked to the advantage of getting something accomplished. Either the people will rise up and want to get some changes made so that it could pass, or individual senators would work together to try to get something done. I do think, though, and I have I've thought about this a great deal. I am so concerned about voting rights and the subversion of the elections that we're seeing going on in legislatures around the country. I have always said that the Congress of the United States needs to be the backstop there. The, the, the Constitution allows Congress to step in, and it is such a dire situation right now, I believe, that there ought to be a carve-out for the filibuster for voting rights. And again, I know that that is a slippery slope. And I'll say this, too. I agree with the president that right now, given the decision of the Supreme Court in taking away women's reproductive rights and the decision that their decision that they should be making about their their own health and their own bodies, I think that Congress needs to be the backstop there. And I think there needs to be a carve out if Republicans want to change it, because there's a lot of people that think McConnell's going to change it anyway. Right. That may happen. But at the same time, with what we see going on in the country right now on voting, on women's reproductive rights, there's got Congress has got to step in. We need to make sure, as slippery a slope as it is, I think on those two issues, we've got to do something. You've been in the fight for women's reproductive freedom for a very long time. In fact, you helped coordinate the state and federal task force in the aftermath of Eric Rudolph, who bombed a women's uh, health care clinic and that kind of domestic terrorism. Then, for those that may have forgotten, he also was responsible for bombing Centennial Park in Atlanta mm-hmm. in 1996. This has been a long fight, Mr. Jones, and I know you know that. And this has been something that evangelicals and reactionary Republicans have been fighting for literally since 1973. And here we are. Mr. Jones, do you believe that the overturning of Roe, or shouldn't say the overturning, leaving it up to states, and we know that individual states sometimes can act like their own independent countries, do you think this could be enough to get some women that voted conservative, Republican, voted for Donald Trump, to do an about-face and to maybe return their vote to Democratic candidates that want to protect protect reproductive freedom for women? I, I certainly think that it's the opportunity, it's the messaging that we have to do. And there's, there's a couple of things, I think, that are very important as we go forward. Number one, we have to make sure that, those, that people understand that this is not just about returning to the states. It's about returning to the states who are actively working to do things to not even make exceptions for things like rape and incest. We saw a situation recently where a 10-year-old girl had to travel across state lines um, to take care of herself. And what's happening around the, the country is that the, these states are also looking at the next steps. They're looking at medications. They're looking at contraception. They're looking to go even further than the absolute ban on abortion, and that is going to really challenge women's health in general. I think connecting those dots is important. For those folks to know that it's not just this one decision, it is what is coming down the pike in the states. And we no sooner saw, I mean, the ink had not even dried on that decision when all of these folks who have been saying for years that we need to overturn Ray and put this in the hands of the states and let each state do it, all of a sudden, within hours, are saying we need a federal legislation. We need to ban 
by federal law abortions without exceptions across the board. Mike Pence said that. You're seeing it happen. And so we people need to understand that this is not the end of that question. It's really just the beginning of the chaos that this decision has created. And in Wisconsin, we have one of the most prohibitive laws in the country. We have a trigger law that goes back to 1849 that immediately makes it a felony for a woman who is seeking an abortion, and the doctors can be prosecuted. Now, a number of our prosecutors in the state have said that they absolutely will not waste limited resources in in prosecuting women who want to exercise their reproductive freedom. But it just goes to show how draconian some of this stuff is and how much worse it can get. People want to see you. They can, Mr. Doug Jones, because tomorrow, Tuesday, July 12th, Starting at 8.30 a.m., you're going to be at Sam's Place at 3338 North MLK Drive for a coffee and conversation talking about what's at stake in the 2022 midterm elections. I appreciate you being here. You're always welcome back. We know we love the people in Alabama, even though that state <laughs> tends to be as red as the dirt. We, we still love Alabama here. But one thing before you go. Does Trump run again in 2024? I I think he announces that he's going to run. Whether he stays in the race, I don't know. If Donald Trump thinks he's going to lose, he'll get out. He'll he'll find a reason to get out. I think I think that right now he believes that running is a way to forestall prosecution, which is not true, by the way, folks. Just don't that you know. Maybe he buys into it, but it's not true of Merrick Garland and others. Um, but I'm also believe that if others get in and he starts getting and he looks like he's going to lose, he won't go through the process of losing. He cannot. His head would explode if he lost. Former U.S. Senator Doug Jones, been such a pleasure having you here. We appreciate you stopping by and chatting with us. Thank you. Always great to be here. You're listening to The Truth with Sherwin Hughes on the new 1017 FM. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back.